Welcome to Earth to Philosophy, a conversation-based podcast with philosophers working on nature and the environment. Nature being something that can be plastic in the sense of the values it can hold can be so vastly different from one time to another, from one you know, social class to another, from one even gender. In this episode of Earth to Philosophy, Claire and I spoke with Eric Godoy. Eric is an assistant professor of philosophy, and he's also an affiliated faculty member in the Women and Gender Studies program at Illinois State University. We had been speaking a little bit before the recording started, so this interview jumps right in. In part because you sent us a bunch of different things, what I am curious about in general is how they all... So one of the things is a paper that's already been published in Environmental Values in 2017, but then there were several other things that are like in an earlier stage of development. So maybe you could say a bit about each of those projects and yeah, introduce them individually and then talk about how they relate to each other or how they might grow into something together. Sure, that's that's a perfectly good question to ask. So the, the article that I sent you, the, the published article on sharing responsibility, that sort of came out of my dissertation project which is on collective responsibility, thinking about collective responsibility and climate change and individual responsibility, feeling the sense that, you know, well, I should be doing something about that, but I'm just one person. And even if I stop emitting um, any sort of greenhouse gases, and even if I like kind of move out of civilization and start planting trees and have a negative carbon impact, um, climate change will likely continue you know, regardless of what I do. So if the outcome's the same, if I do something or don't do something, or if even if I do something, the impact's so minimal, it's not likely to affect the outcome. You know, what's my responsibility? And um, that was the sort of question I was puzzling over in my dissertation. And as I was doing that, um, divestment movement was growing, especially on college campuses. And so I looked at that as an example of what the kind of responsibility I think that we ought to be taking might look like. When I, I defended the dissertation, I, I extracted a few articles out of the dissertation and got them got a few of them published here and there, all kind of centering around that topic of collective and individual responsibility. Then I was kind of taking a break from that. And the three three other projects you mentioned all started as very separate side projects, but I now kind of see them growing together. And I, was, I remember the day when I kind of it kind of clicked that, wait a minute, these all kind of sound like I'm puzzling around the same idea and got really excited and thought, well, this could be a book project. And part of my excitement was having these separate things kind of realize, no, I'm asking the same question in different ways. But the other excitement was, oh, good, maybe I won't have to talk about climate change because it's gotten really depressing to think about especially given the politics in the U.S. and all the rollbacks and um, backsliding that's been going on. Because when you do this kind of work, you have to keep up with the news. And, uh, I mean, you should always keep up with the news, but especially with climate change, to see what's going on. And it just was getting really disheartening. So the way that these other projects came up was I had been teaching a course that I designed right before leaving my last position at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, where we were revising our general education courses there. We were trying to build some interdisciplinary courses. 
and um, I put together a course called Making Faking Nature, and uh, that was designed to kind of appeal to a lot of designers and artists that are at the Pratt Institute. You know, the idea of fabricating nature is in, was interesting to me, and I think a lot of students. And so I got to teach that course once before I left and went to ISU. Um, but in teaching that course, I had read a lot of new stuff and had some new ideas kind of floating around. And very all of a sudden, I had a friend who had a um, conference panel that needed an extra person. And they were like, hey, can you come talk about um, divestment or collective responsibility or something? I said, I don't really want to talk about that right now, but I've got these notes on faking nature and Prospect Park. And they said, oh, great. Yeah, that sounds good. And so I kind of ended up reading some lecture notes and it went really well. And then the same thing happened with uh, Cecil the Lion. Um, I just finished reading um, Carol Adams' The Sexual Politics of Meat before teaching an environmental ethics class in, I think it was, it must have been 2015 because that's when Cecil was shot. And I had just heard about Cecil and saw the Jimmy Kimmel clip um, where he was talking about Cecil and basically making very sexualized jokes about the event. And I thought, oh man, Carol Adams is so useful for thinking this through. And so I, the same thing happened where a conference panel needed someone. They asked me to talk. And I, originally it was supposed to be on um, one thing, and then it ended up being on Cecil. And so I just kept kind of going with that and presenting it at various conferences as it developed. And I came, came to this idea of, of plastic nature, how nature is valued in these, can be valued. It's a concept that is overdetermined in a certain sense, such that it can hold all these different and conflicting values. And so if that's the case, maybe it's best to think of nature as a, not as an ontological concept, but a normative concept. And if it's valued in these different ways, then who values it in different ways? What sort of power interests are served by imposing certain values over other values and so on? And so that's what I see as the kind of central idea that's holding together all these, this, these newer projects that I've been working on. Can I ask one of my layman's questions? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so could you just explain a bit more what you mean by the idea of like plastic nature? Yeah, so what I mean by pla like plasticity, something being able to take multiple shapes and forms is what I'm kind of playing with there. And then I like the kind of contrast with plastic being presumed to be this like defining feature of the Anthropocene. I'm pretty sure that I didn't come up with this on my own. I think I'm trying to track out references, see if it's been used already, but I really like the idea of nature being something that can be plastic in the sense of um, the values it can hold can be so vastly different from one time to another, from one you know, social class to another, from one even gender. So that's, that's kind of what I'm going for. Yeah. So in this paper, you drop from these very canonical papers in environmental philosophy, the Eliot and Katz papers. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think is interesting in Eliot's Faking Nature paper is the idea he puts forth for why we value nature is that it provides us a kind of historical continuity with a thing that's outside human design and control. 
Mm-hmm. And in the paper, he is arguing against ecological restoration. He's saying that restoration projects have this restoration thesis, which is that you can restore nature in a way that where the restoration has the equivalent value to the original. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, no, this is not true, because no matter how good your restoration is, you lose this continuity. And that continuity is what is valuable. And so... Obviously, with a, with a place like Prospect Park, we're not thinking about historical continuity in the same way at all. But couldn't there be other non, non-nature-based, but other kinds of like historical continuity that I think you start to draw on in your treatment of this when you're looking at like the intentions of the park and or the designers and how the park has been used over time and you problematize some of the intentions as well. But like, So, yeah, I think this might be too sort of monolithic a way of looking at it. But what I want to say is, to me, there seems like there could be a possibility of finding a value in a continuity of like, that relates to like democratic use of this place, maybe very, very different ways over time. But that that kind of continuity could also maybe be a source of value that's, well, that's not tied to nature so much. And that's a separate question. But that was what I was thinking in terms of this continuity piece of his argument mm-hmm. is there maybe you could say a little bit more about why the history why you take the history of this place to be important in motivating this plastic account of nature mm-hmm. so one thing i just want to kind of say right away in response to that is that i kind of struggle i think elliot and Katz are right about one thing that there is something really valuable to having having a space that is that we can go to and see something outside ourselves right it kind of i don't know what the right way to put it is but kind of checks human arrogance and and so on and so forth i think in a way that's interesting and helpful so i, I don't see myself so much as refuting elliot and Katz as i do kind of saying but let's let's think a little more carefully about that so for one thing, for historical continuity, often that continuity is imagined, right? It's a, it's an imaginary continuity because the whole history of wilderness, and I know you've you've written about this too, excludes uh, the native population, especially in, in North America, right? That had inhabited the land, that had transformed the land. What we see as wilderness, untouched wilderness, what looks like untouched wilderness to the American imaginary is often only looks that way because we don't recognize the practices of indigenous agriculture, the effects that those practices had on the land, such as like the intensive burning of the uh, plains, the cultivation of certain forests to attract wildlife. So Bill McKibben is looking at some in his book, The End of Nature. He's uh, He writes, a, or he talks about some of the early explorers of the of colonized America's south right and it was written as if it was like a paradise people couldn't stumble without you know discovering new useful species right and that's in part the byproduct of indigenous agriculture that we may not you know recognize so in one sense that the continuity is imaginary so that's something to be careful and think about the other question you had about the historical continuity of the of Prospect Park, um, this was something that I think Vogel is helpful with 
because he talks about, you know, why why don't we have the same sort of a lot of a lot of what we think applies to protecting nature might also apply to protecting like historical buildings or shopping malls or you know are clearly human-made structures, right? Um, and a park is clearly a human-made you know structure, and it's designed in many ways to not look like it is. Um, but if you become familiar with landscape architecture, which I wasn't before this project, you know I kind of presumed naively that the dips and turns of the park, you know, were just part of the natural landscape that the designer slapped some sidewalks and some lampposts along. That's not the case at all. Like Prospect Park back when they picked the site, in fact, part of the reason it was available as a park space at all is that it was such a unuseful place for the city to develop otherwise. It was always kind of marshy. It was difficult to build on the land. Uh, I think the word quagmire comes to mind when I was I was think, looking at the early descriptions of it. So, yeah, I, I think that Katz and Elliot are right in a certain sense, but we have to be careful about is that continuity something that's actually the case or is it kind of this imaginary? Because if it's the latter, right, then this serves my point that valuing nature this way serves as a form of domination, a way of forgetting and erasing the influences and practices of, of people that were on this land you know, before that idea of nature came along. Yeah, great, that's a great answer. Following on what you just said, what you do in the paper is make this argument that when we say that nature has this, like, has value X, we have to ask who values it in that mm -hmm. way. And like, this is an important question that has not been asked enough in environmental philosophy, I would say. And so sort of an empirical question, but also, more than that, where you're talking about who values the park in certain ways. Generally, what I remember, and you can add to this or correct me if I'm wrong, was that certain communities of people valued it because it's nature, those kinds of like more, I don't know, like saliently environmental reasons. And then other communities, like people who we don't normally associate with being so, like quote unquote environmental valued the park for different reasons and they were like social reasons and had more to do with the activities they might do there or the people they might see there rather than like say bird watching or whatever and so my, my question is like well they're not even really using the same language to talk about how the park value like means anything to them and i wonder if like in this case and in other cases as well that because Nature conservationists have used uh, use very specific language or have very specific ways of formulating those values that maybe these other values that are also nature based values are kind of falling out of the of like what's being listened to. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, I just taught a course on ecofeminisms and queer ecologies and um one of the readings I think comes from one of the early Karen Warren books by um, this collection of essays on ecofeminism. Mm -hmm. um, and the article I'm thinking of is by Dorchetta Taylor, who looks at, you know, race and environmentalism and the history there of environmentalism predominantly being white upper class um, ways of valuing the environment, right? 
um, and that those ways of valuing the environment make us overlook other environmental concerns that we might, if we're, if we're coming at it from that perspective, we might overlook. So things like having access to clean drinking water, having access to, you know, being in an area the, so in the Bronx, uh, along a certain highway where a lot of trucks go through and a lot of, there are a lot of warehouses, delivery trucks, things like that. There are unnaturally high, sorry, I shouldn't use the word unnaturally. There are statistically, there's a statistic significantly higher rate of asthma in children in that area, right? And so this is about having access to basic environmental goods that we may not think about if we just have that version of wilderness, like being able to go somewhere and camp and not have to think about the fact that I live with other people, right? You have to have access to that space, first of all. You have to have the kind of equipment and gear that makes going out into the wilderness pleasant. So I do think that, you know, your position, uh, your social position greatly influences what you would consider an environmental justice issue, um, what you would consider reasons that the environment is valuable. Another example also comes from Marty Keel, who's another kind of ecofeminist writer who talks a lot about gender and, and the environment and how the conservation movement in the U.S. comes right around the time of a perceived crisis in masculinity where uh, a lot of men were moving away from out of out of a farmland going to cities where they could earn a higher wage and this meant a lot of rural school children were being taught by women instead of men and otherwise not being exposed to men and so nature was seen as a place where one could go out and perform one's masculinity you know often by killing bigger things and so this is one of the reasons that in the early conservation movement, movement in this country, nature was seen as valuable, right? Particularly for, for men to perform masculinity and kind of assert their manhood by asserting a kind of dominance over nature, right? It's interesting that they didn't, the, the goal wasn't to go out and kind of nurture nature, right? Like to find bear cubs and or maybe orphaned animals on them. It was to, to shoot and kill, right? <laughs> so... Is a particular way of engaging with nature to insert a particular idea of gender that was valuable in that time. That might still, parts of that might still persist today. Although I've recently met someone, a very interesting person who works on pro hunting and trying to increase um, awareness of hunting. And she kind of tipped me off onto some, some literature showing that um, the fastest growing demographic of hunters in the U.S. is for women hunters. So maybe that, maybe that's changing now. So your gender, your class, your race, all of these things influence how you value nature, right? And so the question of who values nature this way is, is very interesting and important. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That, I don't want to overstate this, but that there has been a tendency to uphold certain valuations of nature, like the intrinsic value, like the intrinsic one, that has such a more privileged, it seems, positioning compared to the kinds of like utilitarian values, those that you just named, like having clean air and access to water. Those are kind of 
like I said, I, it's too strong to say that like environmental philosophy doesn't respect these values, but there is a history of kind of demeaning that way of valuation, right? I mean, and there are valid reasons for that, of course, as an exclusive way to value nature, we can entertain those arguments, but it is, I mean, it does seem completely true that those are those reasons have not all the time been held in equal estimation. So maybe this is asking you to extrapolate too far, but what can we take from a case like this, which is about a park and is about this designed this designed place? Does this case clarify other less like obviously sort of artifactual cases? Mm-hmm. I I really like this question, and it's it's not one I think I have a clear cut answer to just yet, because in part. I, I do get really tripped up over this idea of what is what is what doesn't what doesn't count as an artifact, right? Mm-hmm. So even in the even in the quote unquote like wild spaces, right, they remain the way they do because of very particular legal or physical fences, right, that restrict the kind of activities that can go on, right? In other countries, sometimes this is um often asserting a kind of wilderness um, means kicking people off of land, right? And that certainly happened in the U.S. as well. So there's a lot of artifice that goes into even these non-artificial spaces, right? So it's it's what, what kind of counts as influencing our experience and whose experience? So I, I wrote this really quick blurb um, for my department um, as a new person. They kind of ask people to put something in the alumni letter or something like that. And I wrote about a, a experience hiking for the first time in the Midwest after I'd moved here. And I went with a meetup group and there was a person in the group who kept, I wouldn't say kept, there was a couple times during the trip where he would go off the trail to collect an aluminum can that someone had thrown off to the side, you know. And I thought, okay, yeah, it's because garbage kind of adulterates this experience of wilderness. Like we're all here to hike in the woods together. We don't want to be reminded of things like that there are other people in the world. (laughs) But then on the other hand, like the signs that mark the path are also made of some kind of metal, maybe aluminum. So why doesn't that ruin the experience for us, the experience of seeing the sign? And I know some diehard hikers probably would say, yeah, it does. Like, I prefer to go hiking out where there's nothing but snakes and uh, you can get lost. And part of the experience is finding your way. But, you know, what is it that counts as and for whom does it count as, as ruining that experience? Because I do think that Katz and Elliot, they're on to something about being reminded that there are these forces. And I don't want to be careful about how I suggest this. You know, there's there's a kind of direction and teleology to nature independent of, of our wishes, like storms and apex predators and things like that, that will that will assert their kind of not will, but I think you've written a little bit about this too, Andrea, the the autonomy of nature. It's a it's a kind of a strange thing to think about, but it has a direction to it. And that's I think helpful to be reminded of. But what is needed to remind us of that and who, I think, is an interesting question. When a park is designed specifically to kind of simulate 
those values that we might have in going to the wilderness, right? And it's it has that utilitarian aim of providing it for people who may not be able to get away from the city. In your own backyard, you can go out and the idea is to forget you're in a city, at least in certain parts of the park. That's how it was designed. Forget that you're in a city. It's, it's a place to kind of recharge. Uh, parks were sold in a lot of places, kind of pitching those presumed health and psychological benefits to investors, saying this will help the inhabitants of the city because they'll be able to recharge in some way. But when we try and simulate those aspects of wilderness, I guess you can kind of see the string, so to speak. You can see behind the scenes. Whereas if you are thinking about this in the context of Yosemite or something like that, it becomes harder to see see the strings and recognize that, you know, a lot of this is, is also cultivated and curated. It's just in a different way. So that's that's what I think might be helpful. That's that's why I think I'm interested in the park space. That and also to be quite frank, I lived with Prospect Park as my backyard for 10 years while living in Brooklyn. And there was after going, there was a colleague who led one of my classes on a tour. Once I kind of told her about the course idea I had, like I'm looking at ways of fabricating nature, right? And, and looking for ways of simulating uh, the value, why nature is valuable. And um, one of my colleagues in the urban planning program at Pratt, uh, Beth Bingham, she kind of led me on a in my class on a tour of Prospect Park and pointed out all of these nooks and crannies that I had no idea were there and completely transformed the way I experienced that space. And so maybe others, you know, park spaces are just not something we often go into unless you know about, like I said earlier, unless you know about urban planning and and, uh, landscape architecture that may just go undetected. Thinking about like how this idea that like there's, there's these artificial elements to, to these sorts of spaces which may be noticeable to some people or not to other like you like you were saying how you thought some of the features were natural features or were like already there and that they'd just been you know built around or something mm-hmm. um and i wonder as well like with with that it's probably probably pretty common that a lot of people don't really know what they're looking at when they're like you know they don't know what the names of trees are or the names of birds are or whatever so in a way like this this kind of artifice really depends on like this kind of ignorance that a lot of us have and that is kind of taken for granted that we just don't really know what nature is supposed to look like in that place um or what it may have looked like before so yeah that's not just not really a question but more just a a thought that there's this probably fairly widespread (laughs) lack of knowledge which benefits us in going out and being like, oh, I'm out in nature and I'm appreciating it and I'm experiencing um, it for its own sake or its intrinsic values and not really knowing <laughs> like what values it really has or what history it really has. Absolutely. It's interesting that even in a park setting, that's true, that you didn't know these parts of the park existed. And if I've been to the park, like I don't know the trees. I know a few of them, but I don't know most of them. I know a little bit about natural history, like enough to put very, very obvious pieces together. I know people who who aren't, who, yeah, they're natural historians is not what they call themselves, but they, they study natural history and, and they can walk into a forest or they can walk into a park and tell you the story of it in a way that like, it's amazing because to me, and I think most people, 
we're completely ignorant of <laughs> what had happened here. And we don't really have an understanding of those histories. So your point about questioning the historical continuity already is a good one. But even then, like, it's interesting to reflect on how, if this is so important, why do we know so little about like, <laughs> this continuity? I mean, we don't even know the basics. And I'm, I'm like holding myself to this, too. I confess to being an environmental philosopher that's also really bad at identifying plants and animals. <laughs> There's a book of uh, I got for my, uh, I guess it was my birthday, of uh, identifying Midwestern plants and animals <laughs> that sits on our porch. Because around the time I was leaving New York, I, wow, we've been here 13 years, and you know, I don't, I don't know a lot of the how to identify the flora and fauna here. So I said, well, when we move, I should get better at that. But it's hard. <laughs> a lot of trees look like a lot of other trees. There are a lot of kinds of nature is very diverse. So, uh, <laughs> no, I share your experience. <laughs> One connection that I see between the Prospect Park paper, plastic nature paper, and the Cecil the Lion paper, if all of your projects are kind of thinking about valuing nature in specific ways or like broadening what we think of as ways for reasons or ways for valuing nature, to me it seemed like the Prospect Park paper makes definite normative contributions but is still much more like pluralistic on this question of like why why nature has value. And it seemed to me that with the Cecil paper where you're talking about Cecil the Lion and the treatment of that case in just, I think, popular media, it seems like you have much, like, much stronger normative things to say about the way nature is valued. Is this how you see them as relating to each other? Um, I'm a little conflicted about uh, the Cecil case. I'm, I mean, I'm conflicted about the Prospect Park case, too. But in the Cecil case, it's interesting to me why. So the big question that I'm trying to get at is why was it that Cecil raised so much money, essentially, right? Raised so much awareness and donations. People were sympathetic to the death of Cecil in a way that they weren't to other kinds of deaths that were being reported on at the time and in 2015 was a big uh, summer for Black Lives Matter and reporting on a lot of, you know, extrajudicial police killings. Trophy hunting is not an uncommon thing. So why was it that Cecil sparked the reaction that it did? I should also say recently a lot of my work's been influenced by political ecology and going to the political ecology conferences. And, you know, the question of, of who values nature is is something that maybe philosophy is beginning to ask. But in anthropology and in geography, questions about very particular site-specific peoples and places, right, that's always been on the forefront. And they're also really good at empirical research. Like, that's what they do. They go and they do field work and they talk to people. And I don't, I don't know how you feel about this, but sometimes being a philosopher, I feel very limited and frustrated by the this universal perspective that it sometimes seems frankly inappropriate and in other times but but it's still helpful to think about and it's still you know unavoidable to think about to carefully examine the concepts we think of which is why i wouldn't ever let go of philosophy altogether 
But then the second part of that is being frustrated by not being trained in empirical methods, right? But, or like case-based oh, methodology. Absolutely. It's really great to see that kind of influence and like to bring more work into philosophy and especially environmental philosophy that is based on specific instances and places. Absolutely. So in this sort of, this cluster, this book project on plastic nature, what I'm trying to do is in each chapter, I'm kind of picking a particular place or instance, kind of focus on, and the places and instances I'm focusing on are places where different ways of valuing nature kind of come to a head that conflict with one another. So just like there's something interesting to me about simulated wilderness, there's something interesting to me about conserving apex predators like lions. And what more, not just conserving apex predators as lions, most of the donations that were given after Cecil died, and by the way, it was it broke the website of the of the Oxford University group studying Cecil when Kimmel came on air and, and urged his viewers to donate. It broke their website. It was also very interesting to them, such that they had a Cecil summit where they brought a bunch of scholars and they said, all right, they had the same question I was. That's always exciting when you find another completely different group of people asking the same questions like, oh, so maybe it was a good question to ask. <laughs> but then there's the terrorists. Oh, maybe they've said all that needs to be said. They say a lot of interesting things, but I think there's some influences from philosophy that hopefully could be helpful in, in further thinking through it. So the, the interesting thing to me about the donations, first of all, is that they mostly came from the West, from places where you generally don't have to worry about being attacked by a lion. So that was the first kind of interesting thing. Lions are these really dangerous creatures. You know, you have to have a very particular mindset to go into the wilderness and enjoy it. But even still, you probably hope you don't encounter any grizzly bears or lions or things like that when you do. They routinely kill people and... So it was interesting to me, this part of nature that is both deadly and something that we need to protect. Or I think in my paper, I was playing with the idea of something that, that we have to take care of and something we have to take care against. And the question, of course, becomes like who's taking care of and who's taking care against. And then how, you know, again, lions are valued differently in, in different contexts and by different people and in, coming from different backgrounds. And then, of course, once you start to ask about the relevance of place, Zimbabwe is a particularly has a particularly interesting history of colonialism and dispossession of land. And the white settler of founder of, of Rhodesia, as it was called before it was called Zimbabwe, was named Cecil Rhodes. So the lion, the name of the lion Cecil resonates differently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In, that con in the context of Zimbabwe and its history than it might for years. So just like not being sort of trained to see the influences of indigenous agriculture, you don't see those colonial resonances um, when you're caring for the lion or when you have sympathy for Cecil, right? So what I was trying to get at in this paper is that's the, the plasticity of nature. It can, it can hold all the, these values. At the same time, I don't want to say like, whatever who cares about lions they're dangerous things but i want to look at i want to hold up these different ways of you know quite opposite ways of thinking about lions just to show that there's something about the concept of nature that that allows for us to value it differently 
in these different and contradictory ways. Wilderness can be a wild card of values, essentially. So if we're not conscious of that when we're thinking about the value of nature, then we're not conscious of the, the angle or perspective we're coming at it from, and we're importing all the biases of our position and privilege we might have or, or not have. I don't want to make you think like I don't support your project, <laughs> but I do want to ask, I want to, I'll just go ahead and ask my question. It's meant good naturedly. Okay. But like, so many people have been like, let's just stop using the word nature, right? This is a problematic word. It means so many different things that it's just, it's, it doesn't do a lot of things that we want it to do. It seems like part of your argument here is that because it's so plastic, it has meant so much. And you can entertain the argument that it might not even make sense to use this word when we're talking about such different experiences and values. So then what, it, what should we see here in the use of, in the continued use of this term? Mm -hmm. So the answer is kind of embarrassing. Like it goes back to the the um, the way of the, when you put together plastic and nature, like the um, what's the right word, the contrast between plasticity and nature, the artificiality and the natural. But I think I do agree that something more like environment might better capture what we should be thinking of, right? Um, in Vogel's book, he talks about. Um, to be, to be in an environment always already means that you're acting within that environment and transforming it. Every living creature um, metabolizes with its environment and therefore changes it. So this idea that nature is something out there and that humans are something you know, different over here is a very problematic one. And so maybe you know, environment can capture that as well, or maybe another word can capture that as well. But I, you know, I also think that people are not just going to stop using the word precisely for the reasons you know you you gave that it's it's something we're used to. It conveys meaning. It's conflated often, but by and large, in a lot of everyday conversation, it gets gets our point across. When I say I want natural food, that might that means <laughs> it's at least clear what type of stuff I'm not after. You know, I'm not completely attached to the concept of nature, is the short answer. Yeah, but there's still some utility, I mean, in the, the idea of putting the, the attention on it in a book, like what you'll do, mm -hmm. there's something to be revealed, right? That, that if we just disregard the term and disregard people's uses of it, then we can't see that. Then we just give up on those or just ignore those, what that might reveal to us. Yes. You make a kind of similar argument in your wilderness, uh, one of your wilderness articles on, you know, let's contain, let's keep the plurality of meanings. Yeah. Because they might because be useful. In ways. And, and I don't, I don't want to select, what I don't want to do in the book is um, select a very particular way of valuing nature and say, this is the best way or this is the only way, right? But to break up um, and say it's, it's got all, it can take all these means and maybe in a different time. There are new values that would evolve that, that didn't exist yet. Because for a lot of, and again, my focus is very much on, even when I'm looking at Zimbabwe, I'm still looking at a kind of Western attitude or a particularly North American attitude toward, you know, the, the wildlife there. So, so I focus a lot on, on North America. Even the idea of wilderness um, in North America, it used to have a very negative connotation to it, right? Wilderness was that place where you might encounter 
that threatening aspect of nature that would kill you indifferently. Predators, snakes, weather, disease. Wilderness was the place where devils lurked, right? William Cronin's essay, The Trouble with Wilderness, spells out this um, really clearly. So, you know, nature, are, the ways of valuing nature might continue to evolve. So then I want to talk about the Jurassic Park paper just mm. because I want you to explain a little bit about this great thing that you say in this proposal. Okay. So, and I think, I mean, it relates to what you've just been talking about, but in a maybe slightly different way. It could relate directly. I want you to elaborate that relation as you see it. You're comparing the two Jurassic Park films, which I have to admit, I haven't seen either of, so it's educational for me. Uh-huh. What you argue is what these the films taken in sequence reveal or help us see is not so much about hubris, but actually a kind of more frightening conclusion <laughs> that we are never able to fully understand what our interdependence with nature means. Uh-huh. And so this this is, I think this is great. So could you... Could you say a little bit more about what you mean with that? So this is for a book on the connection between horror films and ecological interdependence. And uh, it's being floated around now. And it's, it's a project that I really hope comes to fruition. So when I saw the call for papers, I, I proposed this idea on Jurassic Park, which had been kind of floating around in my head and which conveniently fit into this new plastic nature project, I think. And the idea is that, so I'm trying to be provocative in the proposal, right? The the real horror is that we never get the connection because we're always forgetting nature. And that's because often we have this definition of nature that is, well, as we've already been talking about, nature is a very mushy concept. It's valuable for different ways and valuing our interconnection then with this plastic concept of nature often doesn't mean much and it's it's often easily kind of flipped on its head and can still mean nature right so the big horror trope that the jurassic park franchise plays on is this idea of being eaten right (laughs) and so i talk a little bit about val plumwood and her surviving her crocodile attack Mm -hmm. um 80s and talking about how even in the moment of you know, being caught in a death roll of a saltwater crocodile, she's still thinking about, she's still kind of narrating her life, saying like, oh, I really hope my friends don't think that I was trying to just risk a swim in the crocodile water, right? Like, that's what that's what floats through her head in this near-death moment. And her point is that we are so likely to put ourselves at the center of, 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 the, of our world that even in our moments of death, we're kind of doing this narration. So being prey is a, is a, she claims it should be a way of disrupting this, where you realize that actually if you're part of nature, if you're part of your environment, it means that there are things out there that would just indifferently metabolize you and consume you. So that's, ter- that's a terrifying idea. And the, first, the message of the first Jurassic Park film seems to be something that is, you know, that famous kind of catchphrase by the the character Ian Malcolm now, the chaos mathematician, said life will find a way. It's kind of hubristic to think that you can control this great force of nature, such as life. It's going to subvert your controls. 
Um, and that's what exactly what happens, right? <laughs> and um, but then in the second film, there's this weird kind of relationship with what happened. Sorry, it's not actually the second film. There are there is a sequel to Jurassic Park. There's a third movie as well. But then Jurassic World does this weird thing where it pretends the second and third film never happened, oh, but okay. acknowledges the first film. So it's a sequel to the first <laughs> film. Um, and they, they do play on all these nostalgia tropes within the film because there are a lot of people watching it that were teenagers when it came out, and now they're, they might be watching it with their kids. And So there are these nostalgia themes that made me think of Cronin and the different thinkers that talk about how we're at, well, actually what we're nostalgic for is a nature that never really was there in the first place. We're forgetting that the land was inhabited. We're forgetting the influences that those people have had on the landscape, etc. And so in the second film, we're forgetting that the first film, the villains were, you know, the raptors and the T-Rex that were stalking the characters through the park. But by the time we get to Jurassic World, we're teaming up with these villains from the first movie, and they're now here. They're now part of the heroes in the second film. And what's important is they're heroes that are teaming up to defeat something that is unnatural. Well, in the first movie, it was these these creatures, these dinosaurs that were resurrected. It's unnatural. We're playing God. We're playing with the forces of life, and we're expecting we'll control it. Well, you can't do that. Life will find a way. So they were unnatural. They were their DNA was combined with uh, frog DNA because some of the fossilized DNA was missing strands, and because it was combined with frog DNA, their control over the dinosaurs breeding didn't work because there are some frogs that can change their sex, and hence the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park were changing their sex and breeding outside of the control of the the park. The villain becomes something that is a they call it the Indominus Rex, which is a deliberately manufactured um, hybrid animal that never existed in nature but that's created by the park in order to increase revenue because the tourists are getting bored with dinosaurs already <laughs> it's becoming <laughs> just like any other zoo and so that's what's unnatural and that's what needs to be defeated in the second film to do so we team up with the villains of the first film which have somehow mm -hmm. passed as natural you can also interpret the second film as just a general acceptance of synthetic biology that we didn't have in the 90s. Yeah, exactly. New technologies become maybe naturalized or something that aren't naturalized is the right term, but our standards for nature shift. Yeah. Um, you know, this goes back to the idea of the signposts, the aluminum signposts marking the hiking trail or, you know, the footbridges also that are built along hiking trails so you don't get your feet wet. <laughs> At what point is just a paved walkway, you know, going, at what point is it just going to be, you know, a few potted plants that counts as getting back to nature, you know? <laughs> Thanks so much, Eric. It was really interesting. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate the questions. Thanks for listening to Earth to Philosophy. Feel free to send us an email with thoughts or questions or topics or people you'd like us to cover. You can email us at earthtophilosophy at gmail.com and Claire, why don't you let people know how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Hamlet Claire. Um, so I'll be I'll be tweeting about the episodes on there as well.